Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul continuing this uh, lengthy conversation about generosity. Um, one quick administrative note, uh, and, and we, we go through this every time we do Sunday school. So typically in Sunday school you come in, you find your spot, and people like to sit towards the back and you're killing me in the morning services. You're killing me, folks. Like, you got to move up. We're going to reserve those back two rows uh, if, if you have a medical need or if you have a small child. That gives them quick access to exit for discipline, if you know what I'm saying. And so uh, we want to give them space. We're going to ask the rest of you folks to move up. I'm not going to make you move this morning, but I'm not guaranteed that I won't make you move next week. So you can just help us out a little bit that way. So I'm just, I'm just trying to bless you. Yes, Pam, Marsha, and the Smiths, they all get the award this week. Lollipops. An amen row. Is that, is, that's right here, actually. So feel free, brother, at any time. It helps me know that people are alive and not dead. So uh, I like a little interaction. I'm already with that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, eighth grade. It's never an easy year for anybody. It's junior high, right? Um, so there I am, Johnny Cake Junior High School, and there is this brunette haired, hazel-eyed beauty. Yes, I've always had a type. Uh, um, and her name was Bonnie, and I, she was the best-looking thing I'd ever seen and had this intense crush on Bonnie. Uh, it, sadly, it wasn't for another two years that I'd found out she liked me back. That was, not a, that was an anomaly, so wish I'd known that then, but uh, God was kind. It was a rainy morning, hopped off the bus, and uh, was taking a shortcut across to the sidewalk. And they didn't want you walking on the grass, but uh, I've never been much of a rules follower anyway. And there was these posts with the little metal chains to keep you off. Not really an obstacle, just kind of a deterrence. And uh, so I hopped over one and was making my way to the sidewalk. And I went to hop over the other one, and my back foot caught the chain. And uh, eighth grade Steve Johns went, went face first, full mud puddle. Um, Superman style. There was no time to catch myself. And so I'm covered in mud from head to toe. And as I look up, I landed right at the feet of Bonnie. Uh, that's one of those moments at 14, you just don't even want to go back to school for a couple weeks. Um, embarrassment, right? Embarrassment can happen to all of us. I think embarrassment, though, is different than shame, right? And embarrassment is something happens and you know, you're going to recover, you're going to get over it, it's going to be fine. Shame strikes much more to the core of who you are. Shame is a much deeper kind of exposure to who you are and what you've done uh, and how you feel about it. And, and if you were going to think about one word to help you define shame, it is that word exposure. And when you study through the Bible, that's what you see routinely. I say that this morning because the whole text is about shame. And it's a little bit surprising because out of all this conversation about generosity and giving and administrating generosity and ministry, suddenly Paul drops this bomb and it's do this so you don't feel ashamed. And that seems honestly like an unusual way to motivate people. It's, it's not the way we commonly want to motivate people. Uh, we want to motivate particularly even believers out of an intense love of Jesus and a love of others and uh, looking forward to eternal rewards. But do we really want to motivate by shame? And so I think this is a passage this morning that, in all honesty, lots of us would most likely like to just kind of cut out of the Bible and ignore. And ignore the dynamics of shame as it relates to ministry, and yet we're obviously not going to do that this morning. And so 2 Corinthians 9, we'll read these first five verses of chapter 9, and then by God's grace, we'll unpack this this morning. And Paul says this, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you, to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of us to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, 
not as an exaction. And so Paul wants to drive them a little bit by shame. And the text that Darren read this morning is one of the most prominent shame passages you see in the Old Testament. You have this Mephibosheth uh, when he's five years of age and uh, Saul is losing, Jonathan is killed, his nurse picks him up and is running out of the palace or the home with him, she falls, and somehow in which she fell, it did some significant damage to his legs. And the Bible describes it as he's crippled in both feet. Now, that could mean literally anything from his ankles are shattered, and he was never able to walk on his feet again, all the way to paraplegia, where he has lost sensation from the waist down or so. We're really not sure. Hebrew's a little unclear. What's clear about it is he can't walk on his own. Uh, he is now rendered lame and, and disabled. And there's a shame that comes with that, isn't there? There's a shame that comes when you're physically disabled. You, there are things he can't care for himself, ways he can't uh, provide for himself. He's never going to be like other men. His dad is a fierce warrior. Jonathan, his grandfather, was the tallest, strongest guy in the land. Mephibosheth is never going to be any of those things. He's never going to be a warrior. He's never going to go into battle. He's never going to be honored, revered, or seen as a leader. Most likely, he'll never get married. He'll never have children. His life is ended because the shame of his grandfather has now been passed down to him through the accident of a nurse trying to take care of him. On top of that, he would be old enough at five to remember what it was like to be able to run with his friends. So it's the shame of the loss, the shame of the physical. David now comes to the throne. It's, we've fast-forwarded a number of years, and David wants to bless somebody from King Saul's household. That's amazing. Since when does a king want to bless his enemies and their children? And David calls, and they say, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is brought to David, this crippled boy, and David extends to him great grace. David says, you'll eat at my table, you'll be treated like one of my sons. Mephibosheth is overwhelmed by this kindness and this grace of God. Just, you just have to imagine, what would it be like for you to be a disabled orphan who everybody thinks the king should kill you, but the king rescues you? This is actually a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because you and I are shame-filled people. Shame-filled because of the history Shame-filled because of the actions of others. Shame-filled because of who we are. And then the king comes and he extends grace to us. And so David brings Mephibosheth into his home and he's going to feed him. He restores his land to him and he orders the servant of Saul to manage the land. But everything is going to go to Mephibosheth. Fast forward a number of years and David's son Absalom leads a revolt. Comes into the land. And as he's coming to the land, David is fleeing away into exile, and those that are loyal to David go with him, and Mephibosheth doesn't go. And David asks this servant, Ziba, why, where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, Mephibosheth sees this as his chance. You see, now the one who took over from his dad has been driven into exile. Ziba tells David that Mephibosheth has aligned himself with Absalom. Mephibosheth sees this as a way to finally get revenge on the man who's responsible. He would view as responsible for the death of his father and of his grandfather. And so this man who has been rescued out of his shame has such little gratitude, so little care, so little compassion. He's so unmoved by the grace of David that he would turn his back on him because he's just bent for himself. That moment, and I'm going to stop there in the story with Mephibosheth, that moment is an incredible picture of exactly what David is trying to get through to the Corinthians. You have been rescued. You have been given grace. You and I have been blessed as disabled, shame-filled orphans to have been rescued. How will we now relate to the king as we move forward? That's what he's going after. And so this morning, the context of understanding ministry and generosity, we really begin to see this. This is what David, excuse me, what Paul wants to go after. Shame in the presence of ministry exposes hearts that love Jesus or us. And one of the takeaways you can get from this text is you're going to experience shame on some level. The question is where and to whom and how does it work? And ultimately what shame does is exposes our hearts. 
And so this is one of those texts this morning. It's a little bit of uh, spiritual cardiac surgery. Get in there and deal with my hard heart. Get in there and deal with who I am. You and I are incredibly deceived about who we are. We go through this life. We all tend to think much better of ourselves than we ought to think. Uh, we, we tend to, to view ourselves as more gifted than we are, smarter than we are, kinder than we are, lo- more loving than we are, more sacrificial than we are. We all tend to give ourselves a pass, even when we're really hard on ourselves. Some of you are sitting there thinking, I'm harder on myself than anyone else. You're right. Is that still the same as the truth of what the Word says about who we are? Because whatever the Word says about who we are is who we really are. And we have to get down to that before we can look to the answers that he has for us. And so shame in the presence of ministry, this is why Paul will go after it, this unusual means of motivation. Shame in the presence of ministry exposes hearts that love Jesus or us. And so to get back to the revealed hearts, let's, let's look at this, first of all, this one more thing that Paul goes after. He uses this interesting word at the start. He says, now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. What Paul is doing in the text is he's giving them an additional motive. I want to motivate you to go back to take up this offering that you stopped. A year ago, you started setting aside money every single week so that when Paul comes, he's going to take this money, he's going to travel around the Mediterranean and drop that off to the Judeans who are under intense persecution. So they started doing it, and then they faded pretty quickly. And they stopped taking up this offering, stopped doing this. And so part of all he's doing in chapter 8 and here at the start of chapter 9 is to re-motivate them to do it, right? Uh, Somebody, when we are motivated, when people are cheering us on, people are giving us direction, uh, we are always finish well. And so he wants to motivate them, and he's given them a whole series of motivations of why they should give. In chapter 8, he said, you want to image God. God is generous to us, so we want to be generous to others. When we do generous ministry, we are literally putting God's grace on display. We're, we're giving someone a physical image of kindness when we do ministry this way. So, so you should give because you should want people to be able to see the kindness of God. Right, he says that they should give to fulfill their promises. It's an integrity issue. Right? You said you were going to do it. Do it. It matters far more how you finish than how you started. Underpromise and overdeliver. Don't overpromise and underdeliver. He says you need to fulfill your promises. Jesus said, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no." In other words, be trustworthy. Uh, Jesus tells the people not to swear to things. And, and why does he tell them to do that? People typically will swear to things because they're not a believable person. I used to work with all these guys in construction. It was like the weirdest thing in the world to me. Um, at one point, I think there was twelve of us. Eleven were convicted felons. This is, you know, top shelf, cream of the crop kind of guys I'm working with. Ranged everything from, I kid you not, distribution of, of marijuana um, all the way to assault with intent to kill. Like, this, this is, these are grand guys. And they, they would swear to things all the time. It meant nothing to me. Like, I didn't understand. They would, they would tell me some story. It'd be unbelievable. I'd be like, yeah, right. No, I swear it's true. I'm like, okay, I swear. And, I, and you'd see them scrambling. I swear my mother's grave. Like, what does that even mean? Right? Like, the reality is you're not a very believable person. And they swear to try to prove a point. Jesus' whole point is, as a follower of Christ, Satan is the father of lies. We should be believable. If we say we're going to do something, we do it. And Paul is calling them, you should give this offering because you said you were going to do it. Now you've stopped doing it. You should do this to fulfill promises. And he, he tells them it's a blessing for them. And when we do ministry, it blesses us. When we seek to love and serve others, we get a rich blessing. I learn far more when I'm teaching than when I'm a student because you're doing all kinds of study and investment in it. When you set aside and sacrifice your time, your talents, your energy, your resources, your money, God blesses you. Uh, I I think any of us that have been walking in Christ for any length of time and you've done ministry, you've experienced the rich blessing that you receive from trying to go out and bless others, you really get to a point where you quickly realize, I think, in the Christian faith that you'll never outbless God towards you, right? You'll never so minister to others more than what you receive from the Heavenly Father. It's just amazing the way that is. And so that should motivate you. And then you should do it to demonstrate growth. Not just to demonstrate growth, but to grow you. He says, go out and do this ministry. Get back on this. Be generous. It's going to showcase that God's changed you. The Macedonians are giving because it's demonstrating that God has put this in them. They love him. They love others. It's kind of like dot, dot, dot. What about you? You really love God and others? Then do this. Show the growth. 
These are all. And then he comes and he uses this word. Oh, and there's one more thing. Now that is Columbo. And I know I'm speaking to his particular crowd in this moment. He's a cop. He's a detective. And Columbo was kind of this, presented himself as a bumbling kind of detective. And he, every show almost ended the same way. He'd start asking questions of the prime suspect. And, and they were dumb questions that everybody, well, now what's your name again? And how do you spell it? And now you were, and the, you could see the suspect getting irritated, more and more irritated, irritated. Yes, it's this, it's this. And then he'd always turn around, he'd have this cigar, he goes, oh, there's just one more thing. And it would always be the question that unraveled everything. It was just kind of this funny shtick that he had. Well, Paul says it's superfluous. Now, it does not take a Koine Greek expert to know there's no word superfluous in the Greek. There is this idea, though, and it, and it is this, and it's, it's what, why we translate superfluous. That's why the ESV, the most, I think, trying to get as close as we can both to the word-for-word translation in our English language, why, why it goes with superfluous. It's typically an unnecessary but one more truth. Like, do I really need it? one more thing to tell me and so paul is saying it seems like there's just one more motive to give you that seems more than what i've already given you isn't there enough motive i've given you enough motives but there's one more thing so why do it then i mean paul could have saved you a whole sermon right could have saved the corinthians several more minutes of reading Um, you should want to be as concise as possible with getting to the point so if it's really superfluous, why put it in there? And there's a couple of indications here to help us think about it. First of all, we're reminded that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it's not an unnecessary truth. Just because it's an additional truth doesn't mean it's, not, it's unnecessary. Secondarily, it occurs at the end. It's kind of like the last thing, and he's going to rehearse some other truths here about how it's a bigger blessing to you and how you should go about doing it. But, but he's really come to the conclusion of just pure motive. So I put it in. I think the best way to illustrate it would be like if you were teaching a teenager how to drive or, or someone else how to drive, and you're trying to work through that with them, and, and you get in the car, and you say, you know, you've adjusted the mirrors, hands at 10 and 2, uh, um, you, you've checked your surroundings, you've got your seatbelt on, you know how to turn the key, you know how to engage the transmission, all those things, and the person is just, yes, yes, I got it all, I got it all. They're checking, there's no kids behind them, they're ready to back out. And you say, oh yeah, just, it's just one more thing. Gas is on the right, brake is on the left. That's a pretty important thing. Yeah, in one sense, it's just one more thing. But it's kind of like it's so important that if you don't include that one more thing, people could die. By putting it last... By saying it's superfluous, by putting it at the end of a string of motives, Paul's actually telling us a lot about this motive. It should play a huge role in the way you and I think about doing ministry. This motive has such a clear connection to reveal why we do the things we do and why we don't do other things. And it all comes back to this incredible sense of shame. And so with that, we can think about shame's power. In the Bible, shame is all through the Bible. It's everywhere. Uh, It really shows up, first of all, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin, and there's shame. Uh, They decide to make fig leaves. They they try to hide from an omnipresent God. And you see in the garden the three responses to shame that show up throughout the whole Bible and extend to your life and my life today. They think that they can cover their sin. They've they've disobeyed, they've dishonored, they've disbelieved God. And so they think that when nakedness is revealed, I can cover it. And we can think of this shame response as hiding. Uh, David, he sins with Bathsheba, and he thinks he can hide it by killing her husband. Uh, We hide by lying. We hide by deceiving. We hide by refusing to confess what we've done. We hide by pretending it's not such a big deal. We hide by dismissing the feelings, hurts, or consequences to others. 
We hide in all kinds of ways. We hide as a response to shame. But we don't just hide, we withdraw. So Adam and Eve have covered themselves, but they sense that their covering is insufficient. So they withdraw specifically from the one who could hold them into account. David has so removed himself, there's a reason the prophet Nathan is afraid to go into David. It's not just because David could have the power to kill him, but it's very clear that there has been a distance, a breaching in the relationship. Have you ever run from someone whom God has put into your life to keep you accountable? Maybe as a child, and you've run from your parents or from a teacher, or maybe as an adult, you've run from the presence of your boss who could keep you accountable. You've hidden things from a spouse or from a close friend, and you've withdrawn yourself. Proverbs tells us that a person who isolates themselves, it tells us two things about them. They are a fool, and they do it so they can fulfill their own desires. Always be concerned when you see people who isolate themselves from others. Proverbs is telling us why. When you and I isolate, when we pull back from people, we're doing it so we can do whatever we want to do. Adam and Eve go into the bushes. The fig leaves are not enough. I'm going to pull back from the one who would hold me accountable. I feel a deep sense of shame, and I don't want to deal with this. You see, you see shame expressed uh, when you're dealing with someone one-on-one, and maybe you're confronting or asking them questions, and they won't look you in the eye. How many of you ever said to somebody, look me in the eye? Because there's a sense of shame. It's a natural physiological response to a sense of shame. We even have the flip side. We say that someone is a bold-faced liar. We're shocked that someone would be so bold to just look us in the eye and lie to us. We think that we're walking lie detectors, that we can determine when someone is lying to us. I, I don't. If, if you think that, you're wrong. <laughs> like Scientific doesn't, doesn't mean you can't figure it out sometimes, but scientifically it's, it's actually proven we can't, we're not good human lie detectors, and there's ways to beat them. And so how do we deal with our shame? We hide and we withdraw. Odds are, there are things about you this morning you would never want exposed. There's things about me I would never want exposed. Shame and exposure, and so our way of dealing with them is to hide or withdraw, or thirdly, to blame. It's somebody else's fault. Uh, I feel ashamed because of you. We see our culture dealing with this now. It's, it's been interesting over the last several, um, I don't know, years, but maybe decade or so, to see such a flip of the script in our culture about what you should be ashamed about and what you wouldn't be ashamed about. Right? Um, and I'm not, I'm not advocating these are right responses, but when I was a teenager, if someone, if a boy was homosexual, and this was carnal and wrong. He got beat up. It was, that was the common response. And we fast forward, and that, that, frankly, is a wicked response. It's an ungodly response. Homosexuality is no greater sin than any other sin that you and I have committed. And it's an ungodly reaction, and I think it's easy, uh, and it's even easy in Christendom to place harsher judgment on that sin than on the sin of self-righteousness but we dare not. But you fast forward now, and the trend is coming out videos. And so there's no shame at all. And so the one is a wrong response to the shame from others and their own hearts. The other is a wrong response to shame, because I'm going to flip the script and I'm going to blame everybody else for it. We blame people for what we do all the time. I remember as, as, as a young person lying to cover sins, and the blame sometimes is subtle. I knew how angry you would be, i.e., I lied because of your anger. It's your fault. Um, I stole this because I don't have it. I lusted for this because God hasn't given it. And we blame, Adam and Eve blame. Uh, uh, they blame one another. They blame the serpent. Ultimately, they blame God. It's your fault. You put me in this spot. I never would have done this if you hadn't backed me into a corner, God. This is how we deal with shame. And we see this with David and Bathsheba. We see it with uh, Judas. He betrays Christ. He goes back to the priest, and he throws the silver on the ground to them. It's your fault, really. (laughs) 
This is what he's claiming. It's your fault that I sold him out. It's your fault that I sold out the friend that I've known for three and a half years and have seen him do amazing miracles and seen other people convinced that he's God himself. It's your fault that I betrayed him? I don't think so. And then his ultimate hiding and withdrawal is to commit suicide. Shame. How am I going to deal with my shame? And it's when we think this and we know this, and we understand the, the, the dominant thread, the crimson thread of shame that runs through the Bible, it seems shocking that Paul's appeal to them would be, you're going to make me look bad and you look bad if you don't do this. seems phenomenal to use shame to motivate, and yet we also see shame throughout the Bible to be used to motivate even in positive ways. Mordecai goes to Esther. Esther's, all the people are going to get killed there in Babylon. Esther's hidden her Jewishness. Uh, she's the queen. She's the chosen one from all the land. And Mordecai says, you've got to go into the king and you've got to appeal to the king so that he'll deliver the Jews. And she won't do it. She says, I'm not going to do it. She's ashamed of her Jewishness and she wants to hide it. She wants to, she's embarrassed and she's afraid of what's going to happen. And Mordecai motivates her by telling her this in Esther. He says, I just want you to know God will deliver his people. But you'll pay if you don't obey and god uses that to prompt esther to have courage okay uh, the story of esther is not the story of a courageous woman put in just the right spot the story of esther is the story of a cowardly woman that god uses and transforms and that frankly is far more exciting and encouraging but it's a shame idea jesus uses some of that as he confronts peter peter has denied jesus peter abandons his friend he doesn't betray him uh, as purely as judas does but the betrayal is pretty deep i don't even know that guy he's certainly not there he runs away he falls asleep when jesus asks him to support him and to pray for him and to pray with him when jesus comes back to deal with him peter uh he says bring me some fish to the shore peter goes down and drags a whole net of fish up there's like five guys. They don't need the whole net of fish, Peter. Peter's trying to prove himself. It's how we deal with our shame. Peter's trying to cover, he's trying to fig leaf his shame of his sin in that moment. Jesus famously has this conversation with him. Um, do you love me? That's a tough question. That's going to induce and expose who Peter is. That's a shame-filled moment. You love me? Yes, then feed my sheep. And he asks him three times. It's devastating. Three times he denies Jesus. Three times Jesus asks him. And so shame is a complex issue in the Bible. It's not an easy thing to deal with. And so at times we see it negative. We, we certainly see our sinful ways of trying to deal with it. At other times we see God use it to expose. See, shame is always going to be there because we have to be exposed as sinners for who we are. It's when he asked the woman at the well in John chapter 4, um, hey, hey, uh, could you go get your husband? I, I'm not married yet. Yeah, uh, you've been married five times and you're living with a guy. That's a shame-filled moment because it's an exposure moment. I want you to understand this, though. God never exposes us and reveals our shame without the perfect plan to cover it. He doesn't call Peter to the shore to humiliate him. He doesn't ask that question of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, to humiliate her. He doesn't call Adam and Eve out from behind the bushes to humiliate them. He does it so that he can clothe them with his clothing. He does it with Peter so he can set him on mission. He does it with David to demonstrate that while David is a man after God's own heart, and while David is a king, he's not the future one true king, and God forgives. And so I am confident this morning that as Paul is exposing the Corinthian shame, he's doing it for a plan. And I'm also confident that this morning, as your shame or my shame may be exposed in ministry, he's doing it because he wants to call us away from these methods to something far, far better. And so to understand that then, we've got to understand then what would be the Corinthian shame. What's really shameful here uh, in this moment to go after them? And so... First of all, the fact that they made a bold commitment, right? Uh, in verse 2, <laughs> Paul points out this commitment level. I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. 
Uh, we know the story here. The Corinthians made this commitment. Paul, first, it comes at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. There's this opportunity to raise money. Paul has the plan. Give money every single week so you cum- accumulate enough to send to the saints at Judea to help them out in the midst of it. And their initial response was one of incredible readiness and incredible zeal. They love to get started on this project. They're excited about this project. Um, things with, with Paul are not quite as tense as they're going to get. They're not quite as strained as they're ultimately going to be. And their initial response to ministry is telling. We can say yes when someone asks us or invites us to do ministry or God just purely prompts us to do ministry. We can say yes for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes we say yes because of fear of man. Sometimes we just don't want to disappoint someone. They ask us to do something or give us an opportunity for ministry, and we say yes because we don't want them to think less of who we are. Maybe the Corinthians said yes because they were afraid of how Paul would think of them. He's already confronted them. It comes at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, that includes chapter 13, which is all about love. So now he gives them an opportunity to give of their resources to someone else. He's confronted them about the wealthy, poor divide. Uh, at communion because some of you get drunk you got plenty of food other people are going hungry so now he gives them an opportunity to give maybe some of them said yeah i'll do that ministry because i don't want paul to think bad of me sometimes we say yes to things for wrong motives but sometimes we say no to things because we're selfish (laughs) right i I think it's interesting because sometimes we'll, we'll say well i have a habit of saying yes out of fear of man so my answer should be no no maybe your answer should still be yes with a different motive because I think sometimes we say no because we're selfish people. Uh, an opportunity, God brings a ministry opportunity in front of us, lays something in our lap, and we're actually not interested in doing it. I think all too often when we are presented with ministry opportunities, I, I think this is the way we tend to think about it. We live very full lives. We live very full schedules. Um, uh, most of us, and, and I just say this not in a know-you personal way, but just in the nature of humanity, we spend what we make, right? Like, like very few people get a raise, uh, make more money, and, and don't spend more, right? Like that's just the nature of the beast. We all tend to grow and shrink based upon what income is uh, rather, than, rather than maybe it shrinks down and be like, oh, we were able to do that. And then when it grows back, we're like, oh, well, let's do more. We tend to do that with all of our limited commodities, all those things that we're called to steward. We tend to do it with our talents. We tend to do it with our time. Uh, We tend to do it with our money. We tend to do it with our emotional capital. I've only got so much space. There's only so many that I can do. I've learned over the last several years, there's only so many counseling cases I can do. I've only got so much space, just emotionally and spiritually. I just can't, there are limits, right? This past year in working through uh, my wife's illness, there was just some intense limitations on what the space I had just spiritually, emotionally, and time. Right? So we all have those. So the reality is I think most of us live very full lives. Uh, calendars are full. Uh, emotional capacity is full. Bank accounts are, are full. Like we spend, we, we spend time, minutes, money, whatever, to what we make. And then so when someone says, hey, here's a ministry opportunity, I think the way we tend to operate, most people tend to operate, is we look at our already full calendar, our already full bank account, our already maxed out emotional capacity, and we don't see room for it to fit. And that gives us a freedom to say no. Or, or we think we can shoehorn it in. And we'll say yes. But I want you to understand that's a completely faulty way to think about ministry. Because actually, what we have to do as stewards is prioritize. And sometimes God puts an opportunity in your lap sometimes i'm not saying it's ever wrong to say no but sometimes what you should do is give up one thing to create space for something else now frequently when someone comes to the lord you have to have that discipleship conversation about lots of their life because they come lost with a packed life and then they get saved and suddenly jesus has shown up right so where's my time going to be to be in the Word? Well, where, is, where am I going to have space to be generous? Where am I going to have space to be invested in other people's lives? Where am I going to have that space? And you have to help disciple a person. And I think the problem is we don't live in this reality as Christians. We actually have to do that all the time. It will never be a one and done for you and I. Ever. Ever. 
And so when I, I have to think about it this way wisely, even in our family life. By God's grace, our family life will look different two months from now than what it looks like now. By God's grace, and my wife's surgery goes well, reversal happens, suddenly lots of space that has been filled by God's grace will be empty again. The question is, what will we use to fill it? Coming out of COVID, coming out of COVID, listen to me now, coming out of COVID, you all filled your spaces with something different. Because that's the nature of life. Coming out of it, you now have to reevaluate, how do I steward? And so when we're giving a ministry opportunity, sometimes we'll say no for bad reasons. Sometimes we'll say yes for bad reasons. I'm challenging this way. Unless you've stewarded, unless you've prioritized, you can't know if your yes or no was right. You can't. And so the Corinthians said yes real fast. Yes! Yes, we'll do this. Uh, yeah, we'll get on board with this. And it, it had a positive impact, right? Some of the Macedonians, not all the Macedonians, but some of the Macedonians were even motivated by that ministry expression that was brought from the Corinthians. And so, and so as the Corinthians are responding to this ministry opportunity, Paul begins to see, though, their failure. They made this bold commitment, and now they're not following through on it. And so while Paul understands, hey, there's a positive reality here to this, to this commitment that you made. Now, we don't know why the Corinthians have come to a point where they've begun to say, I can't do that any longer. But we do know that the Corinthians have a bad track record of what they do get ashamed about. And they get ashamed about the wrong things. You see, shame is playing a role in the way they do ministry, whether they realize it or not. Paul knows it, though. As the apostle, uh, <laughs> inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's interacting with these folks, he gets the fact. So they were ashamed of weakness instead of glorying in God's strength. So they always tried to hide when they were weak. They didn't like to be weak. I don't want to appear to be weak. I'm not going to showcase weakness. I'm going to showcase strength. And he says, no, you're ashamed of the wrong thing. You should be ashamed of your strength, not Jesus' strength. They were warped in the way they thought. They were... They were proud of fighting for their rights instead of ashamed of an inability to settle conflicts paul tells them you should be ashamed of this uh, the corinthians were very arrogant about and very pleased with themselves like nobody's going to get one on one on over me nobody's going to do that and this is my right i know this is my right i'm gonna push for my rights i'm gonna fight for my rights even if it's a legal case against another believer i'm gonna fight for my rights and paul says you should be ashamed that you can't in love figure out a way to settle this conflict that's what you should be ashamed about see they're worried about being embarrassed by being viewed as a pushover and paul says that's that's not the problem the problem is that your person doesn't love someone else enough to give up rights where appropriate in order to settle this conflict there was no shame in the wives taking over leadership and worship services they had, they had ladies come in and, and for whatever reason, cultural dynamics, certainly scriptural dynamics, they now understood that everyone's equal or the, the ground's level at the foot of the cross. Um, wives are not these subjugated people. Women are not less smart. They're, they're, they're not less gifted. They're, they're not less spiritual. They're not less trustworthy, any of that. And they, but they explored their freedom in such a way in church where it actually then became all about me. Then listen to me, hear me. I've got something to say. He says, you should be ashamed of that. And they weren't. There was no shame in them in listening to false teachers. He said that should really bother them, but it doesn't bother them. Uh, there's other ones. They weren't ashamed for not disciplining this guy out of the church that was in this immoral relationship. They should be ashamed of that. The Corinthians have a bad track record of shame. They're not thinking in a nuanced way about shame and ministry and life as a believer and what I should do with it and how I should handle it. It seems like in most of these occasions, while some of them were hiding, uh, like the strength and weakness dynamic, lots of them, they'd gone all the way to the end of that pendulum of blame, right? They're going to flip the script, right? So they should be ashamed of the way they're doing ministry. Instead, they blame Paul. You're weak, and it's your fault. Um, we have lots of money. You don't have a lot, but that's because of the way you do ministry. People like us. They don't like you because of the way you do ministry. And they're not even thinking through it rightly anymore. Because they're still caught in this pattern of dealing in a secular way. 
But it wasn't just the bold commitment that was leading to their shame. It was a failed commitment. There are some people that are commitment adver- averse, right? We live in a culture of, of commitment averse dynamics. Uh, people are getting married later. Um, guys want to know how to get out of the friend zone, be a leader, get a yes or no, and move on. That just sounds so callous. That's so easy for you to say. Look, it's good for a dude to get burned. It grows you up. I didn't say it was fun, but it's good. But there's this commitment adversity. You see, if I never make the commitment, then I don't have to follow through with it. You, do you think there's a chance that there were any of the Corinthians that were like, man, why were we so quick to say we would do this? You ever committed to something, and then like a week later you regret committing to that? You start looking for a way out of that commitment? A reason to not fulfill what you said you would do? A mindset, I'll never agree to that again. And so the failed commitment becomes part of the problem. We can see this in verses 4 and 5. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, they haven't collected this money all along every week like he told them they should do, we would be humiliated to say nothing of your humiliation. Now, that phrase there for being so confident is trying to capture an idea of what's showing up in the text. And and what it's missing is, the, is kind of the key portion. You're going to find this in every translation. But, but it's being so confident about this plan. And, and it's this idea that they were so quick and so zealous and so eager to say yes, that this is going to help solve the Judeans' problem, that they should be ashamed that the plan will fail. People are unwilling to step out in risk to do ministry service. See, sometimes we, we think the way we deal with our shame in ministry is don't do ministry. I'll volunteer when I can. I'll do what's, and I just want to be clear here, what fits in my already packed schedule. But the problem is, I know if I commit to this, at some point it's going to get hard because that's the way ministry is. It's always going to cost you. And I think part of the problem is when we, when we think about doing ministry the way I laid out to you earlier, this is my calendar, this is my checkbook, this is my, st- this is my stuff, this is my schedule, and maybe sometimes we'll say no because we don't see a way to fit it in, but we're not prioritizing, we're not actually evaluating, is there anything in here to give, should I give it, Let me pray through that. Let me consider that. Let me ask counsel about that. Let me think through it wisely, get input before I make a decision. And and so we don't do that. But sometimes we don't do that in their space. And we're like, you know what? I really could. I could be a little bit more generous to these hurting believers over in Judea. I could commit to doing this ministry. We see space. And so we agree to it and we fill that space. It's kind of our last spot on our calendar. Our last... uh, $20 that we could spend that are left over. And we we fill it. We're like, okay, we'll do that. And then (laughs) something happens that was unexpected. We thought everything was good. We budgeted for car repairs. We got everything settled. and It's all going to be fine. And then the transmission goes out. And it's going to blow your budget apart. But now you've already agreed to give money every week to the Macedonians. I doubt the Corinthians had cars with transmissions that went out. But suddenly it's sucking up my money. Man, I wish I I hadn't committed to that. I don't see anything else to give. Clearly it must be of God that he doesn't want me to do this now. Because he killed my transmission. Do you think we ever think that way about ministry service? Here's my space in my calendar. And suddenly, we agree to it, and then something else just crushes it. And let's be honest. Nobody's going to cut your pay for not doing ministry. Nobody's going to fire you. I mean, we all have to walk in the Spirit. Nobody's even going to yell at you. Nobody's going to get mad at you. 
Suddenly you commit to do this and a work opportunity shows up that your boss wants you to do this and it's a promotion, it's good for your career, it's good for life, it's good for everything, but that means I need to give up this commitment that I made over here to do ministry stuff. And instead of being willing to go back and say, you know what, I can do that next year, but not now. It's far easier for us to do exactly what the Corinthians do here and stop doing the ministry. Jesus will understand. Christians will understand. They'll all get it. And it all goes back to the way we approached it to begin with. Again, doesn't mean you should say yes to everything. Also doesn't mean you should say no to everything. But how did you approach the decision itself? And I know, I know, I just want you to understand, just to be very aware, I know I'm meddling. I know, as I used to say in my Bible college, I'm all up on your branch. I know that. And I don't know how else to handle it but to jump up and down. Till that bad boy breaks or all the leaves fall off and it gets exposed, which is shameful. And it's hard. And that's exactly what Paul's telling the Corinthians. You understand how this is superfluous but really important? Because it starts to get to the core of why we do the things we do. This whole conversation about shame with the, with the Corinthians only exists because they said they would do something and now they don't want to do it anymore. And they're not following through. If you think at this moment that the answer to this is don't commit then, You are wrong. That's not the answer. Hang tight. There's a better answer. To deal with our shame, then, the Corinthian shame or our shame, it's importantly, important to truly understand all the dynamics that are here when shame arrives. Paul is telling them this. They should feel shame for what? There's only one good reason to feel shame in the Bible. I may have been embarrassed in front of Bonnie in the mud. That was not something that went to the core of my person. It should not have left me with shame. But there is something we should feel shame over. Sin before a holy God. Adam and Eve were right to feel shame. David was right to feel shame. Paul was, or Peter was right to feel shame. Judas was right to feel shame. The question is not was shame the problem. The question is how we deal with the shame. The prodigal son in the pig pen was right to feel a sense of shame. I'm no more worthy to be called your son, but even the slaves are better treated. I'll go back and be a slave. We think the problem is shame, and so we avoid the shame altogether. What Paul is pointing out to them is ministry here is exposing shame. Their yes should be yes, their no should be no. Their failure here is no small issue. The problem is that the Corinthians, Corinthians have struggled a lot with shame in their ministry as we looked at. It's just that it's been misdirected. And so how should we really think about ministry shame? I think we, can, we should think about it from the life of Jesus. You're like, we see shame even show up in the life of Jesus? Yes, but in a very unique way. The shame in Jesus' ministry life always shows up in one of three ways. Who he was with, what he did, and what his message was. And in each one of these occasions, people expected Jesus to feel ashamed. And so early on in his ministry, they wanted Jesus, aren't you ashamed of who you're spending time with? Because Jesus would go and he'd spend time with the outcasts. Jesus' own family were embarrassed of who he was. And they said, you are out of your mind. You should be ashamed of yourself. Because he spent time, listen now, with people like you and me. The world's shame never understands the love, sacrifice, and glory of God. They think we should be ashamed for who Jesus is. Shouldn't you be embarrassed that you're sitting here with these beggars and these prostitutes and, uh, and the tax collectors and the paralytics and the blind and the demon-possessed and the dispossessed? You should be ashamed that you rub shoulders with them. Ministry shame will always exist in this world when we're like Jesus. I cannot believe you hang out with those people. I cannot believe you are loving, gracious, kind, and sweet to those people, whomever those people may be. All of those people, it's interesting. Jesus was, shame was heaped on Jesus for, listen now, going to the ashamed. 
they're ashamed because of what they've done or what's been done to them or how they are physically. And Jesus, because this is the way the world thinks, if you associate with them, you're just like them. And Jesus says, who did I come to help? I didn't come, the, the well don't need a physician, but the sick. I came to raise the dead, heal the blind, cure the deaf, make the lame to walk, make the possessed be set free. I've come to bring living and life to the dead. I've come to make the outcast my brothers and sisters. I'll gladly take on the shame you try to heap on me to deliver them from their shame. He took on shame to rescue the shame-filled. And so, do you think ministry is ever going to cost you the judgment of others? Absolutely. Secondarily, it's what he did. He goes out, he's preaching, he's teaching. But primarily, we see it in this moment, he gets down on his knees with his disciples. None of them want to do this because it's a shame-filled action. None of them want to do this because this is an embarrassing moment. And Jesus goes, and he takes a robe, puts it around his knees, he gets down on his hands and feet, and he begins to wash their feet. Nobody wants to be the servant. Nobody wants to be the slave. Nobody wants to be that guy. The disciples didn't want to be that guy in all their preparation for the Passover. They hadn't hired a slave to wash everybody's feet coming in. Everybody knew that that's what they're supposed to do. Everybody knows what you're supposed to, what's supposed to happen. None of them want to do it. And so Jesus says, let me show you what I'm doing. And then what is Peter? Peter is embarrassed. He's embarrassed that his king would serve him. I'm going to embarrass you here for a moment. The king came and served your stinky feet. That's what he's done. He's gotten your filth on him to rescue you from your shame. He was not so embarrassed by you that he couldn't wrap his arms around your pig filth stained clothes and welcome you in. And the world and even Paul, or excuse me, Peter in his immaturity does not understand that. And he says, no, Jesus, that would be too humiliating of a moment to have you wash my feet. And Jesus makes a stunning statement to him, doesn't he? If I don't wash you, you don't get in, my friend. And Peter's like, then wash it all. If you and I don't live in the reality that Jesus has served us in a shame-filled way, we don't get in. And then thirdly, because of his message. When he goes, and, and when they think he ought to be ashamed is when he preaches that he's going to die. The strongest reactions came when he talked about his own impending death and resurrection. Now, here's what's interesting. All of these were shame-filled things in front of lost people and immature believers. None of this was shame in front of the Heavenly Father. None of it. The Father was, nev was never ashamed of the Son. And in fact, he said, you who have served everyone, I will now raise you up so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are king. You, I will glorify the Son. Because you as the king have come and have embraced the disabled and the broken and the needy, I will glorify you. Jesus never experienced the shame from the Father's perspective. He became like an outcast to reach outcasts like you and me. He shows his love, his mercy, and his kindness. Jesus serving us shows his humility, his meekness, and his compassion. Jesus dying in our place shows his love, his pursuit, and his power. Listen now, shame is an equation, and you should think of it in mathematical terms. It is our actions plus who or what we love, and that's what produces shame. What we do plus who or what we love is what will fill us with a sense of shame. You can change what you do, and you can change whose approval you want. And honor or shame is what's going to come out the other side. For Jesus, he cared very little with what the religious leaders thought of him. Didn't care. He didn't care at the moment with what his lost family thought of him. Jesus is out there publicly. He should be ashamed. 
He's like, I don't care. Because that's not who he's on mission to please. He didn't care what the Romans thought of them. He didn't care what the religious leaders thought of them. His ministry actions were driven by love and truth, and he was on mission to please the Father. So what came out the other side was honor by God the Father, who has highly exalted him. And Jesus was Teflon to the attempted shaming of the people of his day. Paul images the same reality. When the Corinthians try to heap shame on Paul for being poor and naked and destitute and rejected, Paul says, I think very little of what you judge my ministry to be. Because he wasn't on mission to please them. When Paul gives his testimony before Agrippa and Festus, it's an amazing moment in the book of Acts. He's giving his testimony, gets to the end, and he's talking about the resurrection. And Festus says, you're out of your mind with much learning. It's a way of saying, you should be ashamed. You've gone crazy, dude. And Paul says, absolutely not. I am on mission, and I want everybody to get in, including you. He's not ashamed. He doesn't care what the leaders think. He's on mission for what would glorify the Father. There will always be shame surrounding ministry. The question is how we fill in that equation. The Corinthians filled in the equation this way. Giving to an unknown people while wanting the approval of everyone else is equaling shame. They had quit giving because they had experienced a degree of shame. They didn't want to do it anymore. What are these people going to think of us? What do my lost neighbors, what do other immature Corinthians, what do the false teachers think? What does everybody think of me for giving money every week to send it to these people I've never met with a guy I don't trust? And they were unwilling to look stupid. Who do you seek to please as you do ministry? What really drives it the corinthians are ashamed of this idea of sacrificing their wealth they're afraid of looking bad who they love and what they love is guiding their ministry decisions and what it is is the judgments of other people paul is putting it very plainly to them their resistance to complete this sacrifice their resistance to steward life so that they could sacrificially serve they're, they're making a commitment that they don't want to follow through with. All of that will bring shame to them. It will bring shame to Paul, who said, hey, they, you, can, you can trust these guys. Look, this is amazing. They've promised this. And now Paul knows they may not follow through. It should be shame for the sin of lying by promising and not following through. It should be shame for the sin of starting but not finishing. It should be shame for loving how they look instead of loving God. He says, some Macedonians come with me, find that you are not ready. We would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be a willing gift not as an exaction. That last phrase essentially means this. Paul is concerned if they don't start giving now, if they don't start doing ministry out of a right heart right now, when he comes, if they wait till that moment, if they wait till the pressure moment, then there will always be some who question, did they really do it out of love for God and others? Or did they do it to please Paul? Paul doesn't want them to do it to please him. That's not the goal. I'm going to ask you a tough question. Does the Spirit ever prompt you to do ministry? And as long as ain't nobody else ask you, you just let it slide. Paul's saying, I don't want it to be that way. I don't want it to operate that way. I want this to be that God is on you and he's working in you and through you so you get to experience all the joys and the delights of all these other motives. What will they do now? Mephibosheth, Ziba has said that Mephibosheth was afraid to go. Well, the exile for David doesn't last too long. Absalom is killed in the forest. David rides back into the kingdom. And as he rides back into the kingdom, Mephibosheth comes to him. And Mephibosheth has not shaved or washed his face. The Bible says he's not taking care of his lame legs. And so you get the sense of Mephibosheth, because all the servants fled, he is filthy, 
He is dirty. He, he just looks like a wretch. And Mephibosheth tells David, I did this because you had to leave. And David asked him, but Ziba told me you didn't want to come. That's not true, David. His servant had lied about him. And David, when he'd first heard the lies, he believed the lies about Mephibosheth. And so you know what he'd done? He'd taken all the land that Mephibosheth had owned, all the land that had been passed down from Saul, and he'd given it to Ziba. And Mephibosheth says, it's not true, David. I'd sent him to saddle a donkey to come get me, and he left me. And Mephibosheth's appearance is really one that would say this, if you were going to live in exile, then though I was here, I was going to live like I was in exile. You couldn't bathe, I wasn't going to bathe. You couldn't shave, I'm not going to shave. You can't change your clothes, I'm not going to change my clothes. Because my identity is sourced and wrapped up, listen now, in the king who took my shame on him. David is moved. He sees the Ziba deceived, but he's made this commitment to Ziba who was with him in exile. He knows he lied. So he looks at Mephibosheth. He says, then I'll give you back half the land. And this is what Mephibosheth's response is. Oh, let him take it all. I don't want any of it. As long as the king is here. Do you know how we deal with shame? We run back into the loving arms of the king who took all our shame on us. That's how we deal with it. We are embraced by his love. And here's the truth of what Paul is laying out. Christ has taken all the shame of our sin and been glorified by the Father. We take the world's shame for following Christ to join in his glory. I want you to know this. Lost people, immature Christians, others, they will always... There will always be some who think you are crazy for the ministry that you do. They will think it's insanity that you make ministry commitments and follow through with them. They will think it's crazy that you shoehorn something into your schedule and are willing to give up to take out a chunk of something else in your schedule just so you can serve the king who took all your shame. They'll say, no, you you need more you time. You need more you money. You need more you stuff. You need more you emotional space. And you're like, you know, the truth is I have a capacity, but what I can, I can give up over here. I can, I can sacrifice. Isn't it interesting? We try to approach ministry as long as it's not a real sacrifice. Don't let it cost me, even though the king came and it cost him everything. This is a tough word. This is a tough word, folks. But we should be ashamed if our satisfaction isn't found in what the king calls us to do we should be ashamed if it's about how we feel about it or how we look to others or how insane it looks for being on mission for king jesus Because it won't fit this world's pattern. Mephibosheth said, it's enough for me that you're here. Can it be be enough for you that Jesus approves of your schedule, your checkbook, your talents, and your emotional capacity? And quit worrying what anybody else thinks about it. My fear is that for many people, they go to the, I don't care what anybody else thinks about it, and they never move to what does Jesus actually say about it. And so Paul says, I'm doing this so it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Shame in the presence of ministry exposes hearts that love Jesus or us. It is good to be loved by the king. It is good to be loved by him. But may we never forget he took our shame on him. Father, I pray that we would be moved as a people to live for your glory and not our own. That we would submit our schedules and our checkbooks, our talents, our emotional capacity to your good hand. Father, that you would give us wisdom to know when and how to make commitments. Father, that when we make commitments, that you'd give us the grace to follow through. Father, that it would be in us a sense of shame in front of you for the sin of 
of refusing, of not sacrificing, of not being good stewards, of not prior to Father, that's where our shame should be. And Father, that's a hard word for us because shame is so powerful in our lives. And so, Lord, we just want to remind ourselves in this moment that even as you deal with us as our king, you deal with us as the king who has called cripples to yourself. You brought us broken. You know that we would struggle with these things. And so, Father, we ask for the power of your spirit through the redemptive love of Jesus to help us process through this in a spirit-filled way, seeking truth from your word to know how best to do ministry. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.